Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the second episode of the NK News podcast, recorded exclusively for NK News here in Seoul, Republic of Korea, on this Valentine's Day 2018. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today I am joined by Chad O'Carroll, Managing Director of NK News, and one of NK News' finest journalists, Oliver Hotham, as well as an analyst from NK News, Fyodor Terditsky. Hello, and welcome to all of you. Hello. 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 It's certainly been a busy and interesting time on the peninsula the last couple of weeks, so I thought it would be good to do a broader discussion, not just on the events of the last fortnight, but a bigger picture. I want us to start with where we were before the uh, New Year's speech by Kim Jong-un, and then walk us through to where we are now, and if we have time, a look at where we might go in a month or two's time. So when we look back, it's been so dizzying how in the first year of President Trump's term we saw escalating war rhetoric in an equally escalating series of tests, both nuclear and missile, by North Korea. Uh, There was also perhaps some loose talk from the White House, allegedly hinting that the Olympics might not be safe and maybe that the US team wouldn't go at all to Pyeongchang. Now here we are in the middle of February, and last week two senior North Koreans were here, and at the Olympics they're virtually singing the Korean equivalent of Kumbaya. So Chad, let's start with you. Where were we in terms of inter-Korean relations and North Korea-US relations on December 31st, 2017? It was a pretty bad uh, situation. Inter-Korean relations were largely frozen last year. Uh, The North Koreans were not fond at all about the Pak and hae administration. And while Moon Jae-in was elected uh, with a view to uh, pursue rapprochement with the North The DPRK just wasn't interested. It turned cold shoulder at the north for many months. It surprised, I think, a lot of people here in South Korea. Um, But it seemed that the DPRK was just focused on one thing throughout most of last year, which was testing its long-range missile systems as much as possible. And that November Hwasong-15 ICBM launch was a real turning point for the DPRK. It's when they said finally that the state nuclear force had been completed and interestingly they've said that over a hundred times in North Korean media which strongly suggests that Pyongyang doesn't have much motivation now to do uh, uh, design uh, to test its missiles any any further because it's stating that it's confident with its weapon systems and in a way that's presenting an opportunity for Moon Jae-in because uh, the North Koreans don't need to test and therefore they need a release valve for this mounting pressure and it seems that Moon Jae-in is the candidate they're looking to talk to to try and uh, release pressure and project themselves more on an international stage. But we certainly didn't see that in late December of last year, did we? No, not at all. It's come very suddenly. The New Year's speech was a surprise to everyone in our office. Um, We weren't expecting that kind of uh, statement from Kim Jong-un. And it did seem that there had been measures, perhaps in the background, in secret, that led to that. Because following the week week that that speech was made in, the following days, the the pace to the inter-Korean engagement and uh, conversation was pretty remarkable. The fact that they could, within one business week, work out the details for a first meeting um, was pretty remarkable following such so many years of uh, deep freeze between the two countries. Uh, so yeah, in a nutshell, it was a big surprise, and uh, it's it, it, it's still surprising to an extent how it's uh, snowballed, excuse the pun, through these uh, winter months. 
Fyodor, do you want to add anything about the New Year's speech as an analyst? Yes, I would say what we saw was actually predicted by Taeyeon Ho, the North Korean diplomat. So Taeyeon Ho said that North Koreans have a big strategic plan, which goes like this. First, they continue, continuously test the nuclear and missile system until they perfect it. Then suddenly they change everything and they say, oh, we, we are safe now, let's be friends. So, to some extent, that's exactly what is happening now. Uh, they say they perfected the weaponry, and now they don't need any more tests, and they were willing to uh, engage South Korea. But, on the other hand, I, he- I heard supposition that they actually stopped the uh, test, not at the ultimate stage, but on the penultimate stage. So, basically, they needed... And uh, another test to show that the ultimate goal, which is uh, to be able to deliver hydrogen bomb uh, to the east coast of the United States, say New York or Washington, is ready. And Hwasan uh, 15, it seems like uh, one more uh, one more step is needed to achieve this ultimate goal. So what I heard that Kim Jong-un was actually scared by Trump's aggressive rhetoric, and he decided that, well, let's compromise, we'll stop here, and we'll start with our engagement talks. Let me uh, follow up on that. So you <coughs> said that this uh, New Year's speech was in line with what Taeyong Ho said late last year. Does that mean that you were not very surprised by the New Year's speech? I'd say I was surprised because I sort of expected like another test. I uh, I expected something like this New mm-hmm. Year speech, but just not that early. Maybe after another one, two or three tests in the near future. Okay. All right. So uh, end of 2017, very tense time, uh, lots of talk about war and danger. Where are we now? Well, we're at an interesting crossroads as far as US-Korea relations are um, going. North Korea has not suggested it's interested in the types of talks that the US wants. The US is really, frankly, sending mixed signals, contradicting themselves often day by day in terms of whether there should be conditions for talks, whether there should be no conditions. And uh, so I think it's very difficult for... Uh, policymakers on both sides to try and find common ground to get together and talk about the main issue of the day, which is North Korea's nuclear weapons program. The problem is that the US has strongly suggested in recent weeks uh, the likes of CIA Director Mike Pompeo, McMaster, um, that there is a very small window of time left before North Korea's nuclear ICBM program is operational and able to credibly threaten the US. This kind of goes to what Fyodor is saying, that there is, the US agrees with, with Fyodor's analysis and that there, there does seem to be further technical steps. Now, when you have US figures uh, like Mattis, McMaster, etc., saying that it really is unacceptable to imagine having North Korean ICBMs capable of reaching US population centres, if you take that as a genuine Uh, fear and not just something that they're saying, not just rhetoric, then that period of several months is extremely important for finding a diplomatic solution because the closer we get to the end of where the US intelligence community believes that North Korea will have perfected that ICBM, uh, the the greater the chances that uh, we are going to hear a lot more talk about military options. Mm. Uh, Oliver, let me just turn to you. Could you give us... uh, 
a summary of the last couple of weeks. What have we seen here uh, in terms of North-South Korea rapprochement? Well, as Chad said, it's been surprisingly smooth. So it all started with the New Year's speech. Kim Jong-un comes out and says, in a speech in which he also threatened the United States with nuclear annihilation, of course, um, but he also buried it and buried it in this these nice comments about how he wanted to have a peace Olympics and essentially mimicking a lot of the rhetoric that had come from South Korea last year about how the two Koreas could talk about unification and um, you know um, cool things off a little bit on the peninsula a little bit. Right. So he first mentioned Olympics then in I, the speech. He raised it at that point. Yeah, he raised it at that point. Okay. Um, with a and then it's it has operated with some degree of smoothness to the extent that people have said well maybe there was some kind of pre-planning mm-hmm. there's been the suggestions even in mid-December when Tillerson said these things about we'll talk to North Korea maybe something was already going on then mm-hmm. um, some of the rhetoric from the White House um, kind of cooled down during that period um, but then we had this kind of uh, South Korea obviously almost immediately responded to Kim Jong-un and said yes we're keen for this then we had talks. Then the following week, we had the North Korean officials cross the DMZ and what was quite a... After, you know, if you'd... If someone had told you six months beforehand that you were going to see North Korean officials crossing the DMZ and sitting down with the unification minister, I mean, would anyone have believed you? Probably not. Mm. But then talks have progressed and they've been smooth, although there were some hiccups along the way. The North Koreans, at the last minute in January, cancelled a planned um, visit by some North Korean officials, strangely talking about how they didn't like the press coverage, Mm. um, which I thought was something that was quite interesting, um, kind of North Korea confronted with how South Korea works, which is that there's a free press and that journalists tend to be quite critical, maybe certainly right now more critical of North Korea than the government is. Yeah. Um, so there were some hiccups along the way, but and ultimately there were some moments where we thought to ourselves, oh, maybe this will all just fizzle out and the North Koreans will withdraw and they, they won't like um, the fact that Moon has, in his New Year speech, for example, still said that denuclearization would be a condition. Um, but ultimately, as we saw last week, it all, it all ended well. Well, that's right. And, and I think it's... Uh, we should definitely talk a bit about the delegation that came here. Uh, I mean... Can we see them as two delegations? There's the the athletes, the performing artists, the cheerleaders on the one hand, which we, we knew was coming, and then there's the VVVIP, you know, a top brass delegation that flew in on a, on a separate aircraft. Uh, Chad, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the VIP delegation was something that Fyodor and I were watching quite closely because it was something that we thought could pose a dilemma for the South Korean side in the sense that there would be a high probability that North Korea would wish to dispatch individuals that fall under sanctions regimes, be they United Nations or South Korean ones. And lo and behold, uh, when the delegation was announced uh, just last week, we saw Kim Yo-jong, uh, who is uh, designated by the U.S. Department of Treasury. Uh, she works for the Korean Workers' Party, which is designated by the South Korean government. Um, and we saw Che Hui, uh, who is designated by the United Nations Security Council. And... If South Korea had stuck to the sanctions, it would have potentially caused friction at a very sensitive time. Mm. Um, And however you look at it, it is what it is now. South Korea managed to have those sanctions overturned. But, I mean, Fyodor, maybe you have something to say about the makeup of that delegation. Uh, Kim Jong-un's sister herself, what what did you think about the selection of individuals that the North sent? 
So, as you remember, Chad, we first they announced just the head of the delegation, Kim Hyun Nam. And then they announced the three people who were in. It's Kim Yo Jong, it's Choi Hui, and it's Ri Song Kwon. Uh, the only guy who wasn't uh, under sanctions and whose like, very early career we could have observed, because I think the first time he appeared in uh, South Korean media, he was a senior colonel working in Panmunjom or some inter-Korean talks. So the important person there, I think, from uh, like um, Gambit we were playing was Chekhui, because he was under United Nations sanctions. And if it's South Korean sanctions, they can cancel it when we like. If it's uh, United States sanctions, they can always say, well, it's uh, what Washington decided, we have nothing to do with it. But with Chekhui, we had actually to plea with uh, Security Council. They, uh, they uh, seemingly violated the normal procedure which um, allows, uh, which calls for uh, um, requests for sanctions suspensions to be done in 10 days. We did it in one, and since no one of the 15 member states may point out that uh, here, like all uh, 15 member states, not just the Great Five, has a veto power. And since none of them objected, Chwekwi's uh, uh, sanctions against him were temporarily suspended and he was allowed South Korean uh, soil. So everyone seems to be pleased now mm. because the sanctions are not violated, but on the other hand, uh, North Korea managed to actually gain something, i.e. suspensions of sanctions against one quite high-ranking individual. Now, uh, Chad, is the speed of events that we've seen in the last month uh, unusual, or is this a pattern that we've seen before? Well, we have seen this pattern before when there have been uh, crises on the peninsula, tensions have been very high, oftentimes they have been rapidly de-escalated by inter-Korean talks. One example that comes to mind was following the landmine incident in 2015. Um, We saw Kim Yang-on, who's now dead, Uh, come down for talks at Panmunjom and there were lots of promises made for family reunions for further inter-Korean rapprochement ultimately uh, it didn't really yield much results so yes um, we've seen that pattern before but I guess the difference this time is it's coming from the top it's under the instruction of Kim Jong-un and so that puts all officials within the North Korean bureaucracy uh, in a in a interesting position because they have to all work towards that goal right now and we're seeing it play out at multiple levels the one of the things that we are covering recently are these flyers that come over from the north by balloon to south korea late last year these were extremely anti uh, south korea anti-us extremely graphic cartoons depicting president moon Mm, jae-in sucking on the toe of president trump uh, pretty vile stuff. A few weeks later, that it's all peace, love, and harmony. They're sending things about unification, how great it would be for the two careers to be one, uh, you name it. And so, yeah, it's just interesting to see how that Kim Jong-un seal of approval on this line of policy is having a rather dramatic effect throughout the North Korean administration. It really does speak to the extent to which Kim Jong-un can really just snap his fingers mm-hmm. and the country goes in a completely different direction. There's no bureaucracy blocking him. If he decides, right, we're finished with the missile tests now, now we do the peace and harmony with the South, it just completely changes course on his whim, essentially. That's how most dictatorships actually work, yeah. don't we? 
But that does raise the interesting question of, uh, is this all part of a broader plan or strategy that Kim Jong-un has uh, mapped out beforehand, or is he simply playing it by ear and reacting to signals that he's seen from Washington or South Korea or both? I think it's probably part of a grander strategy that, as Fyodor pointed out, that there's this idea that once they've completed the missile nuclear testing, that North Korea has no interest in being on the precipice as it was last year. There's no, the sanctions are beginning to have this, as Chad has reported, beginning to have quite a severe effect on the economy. The North Korea is an international pariah. More and more countries are cutting off diplomatic relations. There's no interest for them to be in this constant state as they were, say, last August. And they don't want the US and Donald Trump constantly mouthing off about how North Korea is going to be destroyed if they step out of line, etc., etc. So I think this was the timing came as a surprise to a lot of people. But ultimately, it would be difficult to see the state of affairs last year just continue exponentially. There had to be some kind of off ramp at some point. Yeah, Chad, do you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, the the only thing is that while it may be a strategy, Kim Jong-un is also aware that he's working within a very uh, short window of opportunity himself because we have the forthcoming US-South uh, Korean drills scheduled to kick off. They are delayed. Um, Until because, after the Olympics, Because right? of the Olympics, yeah. But yeah. When, when those start, now they could naturally bookend that opportunity of of uh, dialogue and release of tensions and so on. Um, and so it's going to be very interesting to see how Kim Jong-un deals with that because if they do start, he will be naturally motivated. His military uh, advisors will be recommending he does things like missile training drills, things like that to project a image of power. Um, so it will be difficult to see how he will uh, manage to balance this kind of tripwire of um, you know trying to engage the south at a time when the south is facilitating uh, large scale military drills which have been getting bigger and bigger every year I mean it's it's we most of the time we just think of them as drills we hear a few words talked about them in the media but these are huge huge drills tens of thousands of people lots of heavy equipment um, and so, and they, and they go on for uh, well, in some cases, weeks, don't they? I mean, what uh, th- there's a, a prog- an order each year. What's the first one? Uh, the first exercise normally called Fall Eagle and Key Resolve are okay. the two that will be kicking off almost simultaneously, just after the Winter Olymp- the Paralympics. Okay, so they're separate exercises, but run more or less at the same time, are they? That's my understanding. Yeah, okay. I think yeah. one is a computer simulated one, and then one is on on the ground one. On the ground. Okay, but I think it's also interesting that there was a tiny hint. I don't think it should be read into too much that South Korea might consider continuing to push for a postponement after the Paralympics mm. on Saturday. It was kind of buried under all the news about the invitation. But Moon Jae-in um, had, the day before, had a conversation with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Yeah. And Abe had hectored him to say, you need to restart the military drills as soon as possible. And Moon didn't say, we're not going to. But Moon said to Abe, don't tell us what to do. Right. Which you could interpret as obviously being typical South Korea-Japan Sparring, yeah, to some extent, but there is also a suggestion there that perhaps maybe it that postponement could be extended somewhat. And the U.S. interestingly, there was a background brief published over the weekend, which uh, included some 
conversation about the US side potentially considering a scale back to facilitate broader diplomacy if they see an opportunity there. Uh, so a, 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 redu- a reduced yeah, that, exercise. Yeah, that was uh, cited to unnamed officials, so right. it's very hard to know what that really represents. Continuing our speculation of what may have been said at meetings, uh, in the talks between Kim Yo-jong and President Moon, uh, she handed over a letter from Kim Jong-un inviting President Moon to Pyongyang. Uh, and he, he said, um, if the condi- let's make the conditions possible. What, can you remind us what he said exactly? Yeah, so the South Korea, so South Korean President Moon, uh, when he was elected last May, he said he would be open to going to Pyongyang if the conditions were right. And the conditions involved North Korea uh, rebuilding some form of diplomatic relationship with the US and also there being interest in making progress on the denuclearization issue. That was repeated in January at the, the top of the month when these inter-Korean negotiations started. And it was all but said officially in the Blue House readouts we got on Saturday when mm-hmm. uh, uh, Kim Yo-jong presented this. So the question is, how do you start these talks? Yeah. Through what prism, what lens do you start them where you can show progress on those areas? And the South Koreans, luckily, they haven't been very clear about defining these conditions, nor right. has the US. So. It's possible that they could find a good enough excuse if the North Koreans show commitment to talking about global disarmament as a starting point, which is something that Pyongyang has always been interested in talking about. Um, but Global disarmament. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it really depends on the enthusiasm in Seoul and Washington, and it's very likely that Washington will have a different view to Seoul with regards to what kind of... Uh, concessions the North would be needing to make. Yeah, let's stay on Washington for a moment. Uh, Oliver, uh, when Vice President Mike Pence was in uh, at the Olympics last weekend and and in his soul before that, and he made no effort to acknowledge or greet uh, any of the North Koreans, do you think he was acting on specific orders from Trump or following a, a longer-standing policy uh, of, of the American government or... Was yeah? Was he just acting off his own bat? What do you think about that? I, I think it's quite difficult to tell with Pence because his body language is so strange. <laughs> but you know, he might have been under because his behaviour was so awkward mm. and off-putting and embarrassed the South Koreans to some extent and embarrassed a lot of the other high, high-ranking leaders that were there. You know, the Secretary General of the UN. Um, I think to some extent there might have been some orders from the mm. White House to say, don't engage with him, don't shake hands, we don't want that photo op, right. because there may be some belief that the North... I think because of partially this belief that the North Koreans are winning a quote-unquote propaganda coup with their presence at the Olympics, and the Americans thought, well, we don't really want to be involved with that, we don't want to legitimise them right now. As it was, the photo ops of uh, Kim Yo-jong almost smirking uh, above the head uh, and behind the head of uh, Mike Pence at the Olympic opening ceremony. I mean, that's that's not good optics for the Americans either, is it? It couldn't be worse. Well, could it be worse than him shaking hands with, with Kim Yo-jong? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I actually also 
read somewhere that there was um, that Pence had originally was originally planned to sit with sit somewhere else, and that he insisted on sitting next to the North Koreans. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm, I can't remember where that came from. Um, he wants to sit near the North Koreans so he could show that there was this kind of defiance, right. and there could be those pictures of him cuddling up with Moon, and the North Koreans are just kind of sitting in the corner. Chad, do you have thoughts on this? Uh, well, the only thing I know is that there there have been. Uh, uh, this was something I read on Twitter from a former official from the Obama administration who was saying that there were been standing rules, if you will, I'm not sure if they're formal or otherwise, for, for US officials not to shake hands of North Korea dating back to the Obama administration. So that could well be consistency in policy. Um, I mean... What are, what are they going to shake hands about? Pence is going to say congratulations on your quest on 15 success. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it, I can understand why he would be uh, unwilling to look at them, to engage with them, especially having the son, uh, the father of Otto Warmbier yeah. uh, flown out as a special guest. Right, we haven't mentioned that yet. Uh, what was the intent behind that, do we think? Fjordo, do you have thoughts on this? You mean or father of Otto Hornby? Yes. Well, isn't it like quite obvious you demonstrate a father of a person who died in uh, while being incarcerated in North Korea? So obviously you want to uh, remind people that there are Americans, people like you, who have fell victims to this regime. So obviously it's a negative image about North Korea to the American population. Is it not? How can it be interpreted in any other way? Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, but since the uh, since Pre- Vice President Pence returned to the United States, he's made some some other signals, hasn't he? Yeah, on the flight back to Washington on Air Force Two, he was with the Washington Post's Josh Rogan, who had a conversation with him about the inter-Korean rapprochement and reported that there was some small breakthrough in that the U.S. position had changed subtly but importantly such that Pence was suggesting that the US would be supportive of discussion with the North that does not start with denuclearization as the uh, focus um, the thing is Tillerson said this back in uh, was it late ne- November it mid-December mid-December mm. and he is was this the we are prepared to talk to North Korea anytime you said without anything. he said without preconditions without preconditions yeah okay and, and Pence has echoed that in his latest statements yes but the very next day Tillerson suggested that that, that wasn't the case Fyodor did you yes I just remembered a quote from Taehyung oh, sorry it just uh, appears here so 100% well he remembered the same pattern in the South Korean government when one day we were talking about a unification next day we were saying we will implement all the sanctions and same happens with the United States so what Taehyung said that ultimately Pyongyang just decided that uh, these are unpredictable irrational regimes and we are not going to decrypt their messages. So are you saying that uh, North Korea is, is sees the United States as an unpredictable, irrational regime? In- indeed. Okay. Note the irony. Uh, interesting, yes. Again, looking at Washington, right now there is no US ambassador to South Korea. Um, there hasn't been since you know, January last year when the uh, previous ambassador, Mark Lippert, was uh, recalled before the inauguration of President Trump. 
What is the significance of not having a U.S. ambassador here in South Korea? What sort of signal does that send? Well, it doesn't send a very good signal to the South Korean people, I think, at an important time for the peninsula when you have uh, an ambassador to China selected within was it weeks of Trump becoming... Uh, in fact, he was... That China one was selected before Trump's inauguration, I seem to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had the Japanese one um, appointed in summer last year. Yeah. Uh, yet South Korea, we've had over a year of flip-flopping around uh, Mr. Victor Cha from CSIS. And then ultimately that all came crashing down spectacularly uh, just a week or two ago. We don't know exactly why yet, do we? There's some speculation about different factors. Lots but of we rumors don't really going why. around. We don't know why. Um, but regardless of the reason, there is no one that really comes to mind among the Korea policy community in Washington that would have the credentials for Trump because so many people during the election campaign signed letters stating that they would criticize or they wouldn't serve under Trump and the never Trumpists yes and apparently the Trump administration kept a list and doesn't want to work with people like that so we're left with the possibility now that Trump Trump could appoint some former attorney that he worked with from Atlantic City or something along these lines which given the sensitivities around North Korea issues right now would be really worrying um, otherwise, there's, you know... Because I think what sort of deepens the mystery about the Victor Char yeah. thing is that there isn't a precedent necessarily for the American ambassador to Korea, to South Korea, being a career expert. I don't think Mark Lippert was a, was a career expert. He was very good, mm-hmm. but he didn't come from that community. He came from having political connections to Barack Obama. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be the trend with most of Trump's appointments as well. The ambassador to China is not some brilliant scholar of China, and the ambassador to Israel is certainly not a great scholar of Israeli history. It's we, political allies. So the question is, why, why was there this desire to have a career expert in South Korea? We had two in the past, though. There was... Uh, Catherine, um, I've forgotten her last name. No, she, she was a former Peace Corps volunteer to Korea in the 1970s, so she spoke Korean. She'd lived here. And there was, um, was it her successor, the uh, born in Seoul, uh, the Korean-American? I forget his name now. Uh, Sung Kim? Yeah, Sung Kim. So we've had two that one would consider to be at least reasonably uh, au fait with, uh, yeah. with Korean affairs. So perhaps that they're hoping to follow in that mould. Maybe. They clearly failed. There is one more small aspect of this, because uh, like uh, when we are sitting here, we understand that appointment of the United States ambassador is something special thing which has done with uh, been uh, like tenets of internal policies in Washington. But from an outsider point of view, when you don't have an ambassador, you are seeing extremely negative message to the country. When you have a charged affair instead of an ambassador. It means uh, normally, not in case of the United States. It means that uh, uh, we are extremely displeased with you, and we are not willing to cut diplomatic relationship, but it's usually called reducing diplomatic relations. So from an outsider perspective, that may be perceived as some kind of conflict between South Korea and the United States. Mm-hmm. And while this is actually not the case, we should, uh, I, I guess, bear it in mind. Well, yeah, uh, Vice President Pence did say last week that there was no daylight between North uh, between South Korea and the United States. So that would suggest that there's no conflict. But as you say, that having only a charge d'affaires in, in, in place of an embassy implies that there may be conflict. 
Some have said that the, com- the current charge d'affaires at the uh, United States Embassy in Seoul, Mark Knapper, is a, a very able uh, man, very familiar with Korea, speaks some level of Korean and would make an excellent ambassador. Is that something that could be on the cards, that he could be simply elevated to the post of ambassador? Well, I think many people would welcome that. He's now had a year experience on the job um, and a really important time for US-Korea relations. Um, I, I'm not an expert on how the State Department works in terms of uh, doing those kind of, I guess, promotions. Mm. Normally it's politically appointed for ambassador level in the United States and right. that would be a career diplomat uh, being promoted, I don't. Uh, potentially, it's possible, but for now, he seems to be doing a good job. And people, are, yeah, I've seen a few newspaper reports and editorials suggesting that that could be one way forward. Um, but then, if the reason why Victor Child wasn't chosen was because of political disagreements with the administration, they might be keen to get someone who does really toe the line mm. politically on that. And Napa is a career diplomat; he's not going to be necessarily minded to have. That sort of approach, I suppose. Not political enough, you mean? No. Okay. Well, let's look uh, forward now. Um, we ha- we're still in the middle of the Olympics. We have the Paralympics after that. And then maybe uh, the exercise that we mentioned, maybe a truncated exercises, maybe a delayed exercises. Uh, what are we seeing in the next couple of months? Who'd like to start off? Okay, well... Uh, Russian press is actually calling what is happening now Olympic ceasefire. And I'd say that's quite a correct term. Uh, because uh, I'd say after this is over, if there are no major breakthroughs, we'll see drills and we'll see some degree of escalation with a low but not zero probability of uh, war. And I would, I would uh, endorse what Fyodor has said and point to some of the indicators that we've seen mounting in recent weeks that do ha- do co- give cause for concern. And I'd say it really start started in December when uh, Secretary of State Tillerson uh, was talking at a think tank event in uh, Washington and revealed that the US was having conversations with China about what to do in the event of contingency and uh, looking for loose nukes in the north, etc. Now, I haven't heard of that level of uh, Sino-US cooperation on a sensitive issue like that uh, before. That was one thing that that, uh, raised my eyebrows then we had the uh, Vancouver meeting that was uh, conducted between the US and Canada and various other foreign ministers. These are all the countries that sent troops to yes. support South Korea in the Korean War. Yeah, which already shows the US looking to work outside the UN Security Council from a diplomatic perspective, realising probably fairly that they've reached the end of the line as far as Security Council goes. But what was interesting is that uh, a Japanese media uh, outlet reported based on diplomatic leaks that um, t- uh, Mattis had said during um, a closed dinner that if the uh, Vancouver thing doesn't work out in terms of there being tangible progress on the diplomatic front afterwards, the next step will be to assemble defence ministers for a similar meeting to Vancouver. And he said it would be defence ministers of relevant countries. Then as we've got to this Olympic moment, there have been lots of US troop deployments towards the peninsula, ostensibly for deterrence purposes. These have included aircraft carriers. We've also had the, the B-1 bombers. We've had the B-52s. 
moving to places like Guam, um, the pace that some of these things move and their arrival uh, means they'll probably be sticking around for some of April as well, which is another cause for concern. Mm. Um, and then we have uh, Mattis scheduled to go on his first trip to, to China, interestingly, in April, which mm. is just after those those drills should have started. But while they're still going while on. While they're still going mm. on. So very interesting timing and... Uh, you know, it's been said, I've been saying this now for for a year, but it does all of it feel like a kind of slow motion repeat of the build-up we had to Iraq War Two, where there was this kind of coalition of the willing building going on. Now, I would just caveat that by saying what's kind of surprised that or knocks my analysis slightly is that this whole Kim Jong-un talks thing, mm-hmm. the summit, that... that that could have a, a big impact, but if there is a summit, if there is, yeah, if there is even a summit, but um, what I'm trying to get at is it feels like there is a lot to evidence the idea that we are going to see more talk about military options and military responses and policies after the Olympics completes and this inter-Korean effort is run its course. So, Oliver, let me throw the final question at you then. Uh, what do you think about the possibility of a misunderstanding or a miscalculation or a small mishap leading to escalation? I mean, I think it's certainly possible. These things have happened in the past. I was going to say that I think for the first time in, in several months, a lot of this is on South Korea. I mean, last year we saw it, it was all between Trump and Kim Jong-un, but Moon Jae-in has actually sort of gotten what he wanted now, what he was mm-hmm. talking about during the election, what he was talking about all of last year and what his sort of ideological um, side tend to say in South Korea, which is that they want talks and engagement. Now he's got talks and engagement. And it that level of misunderstanding really depends on how successful South Korea is in whether or not the summit happens, which I, I think it will probably likely happen. I don't think Moon's going to give up that opportunity to you know, do what his predecessors did and shake hands with the North Korean leader and maybe sign some um, Kumbaya-esque joint declaration. Um, I think a lot of it will depend on how those um, how that goes down and how um, these joint military drills, whether or not they happen or not, whether or not there's some postponement, whether or not the Trump administration is willing to maybe give Moon Jae a little bit more leeway to just kind of see what he can get out of North Korea. Um, if Moon Jae-in fails, though, then there's every likelihood that Kim Jong-un will return to his stance last year and go back to this sort of strong rhetoric, and and then who knows. Fyodor, any final comment from you? Well, I'd say the prob- probability of anything like uh, going out of control is quite low. I can't uh, think out of a war which started uh, against the issues of uh, heads of state of um, actually warring countries. Uh, so I think if if uh, we'll see some uh, military actions, they would be endorsed by either Trump or Kim Jong-un. Okay, and that's where we'll leave it for today. Thank you very much for listening to the NK News podcast. We hope you'll listen again next week. Feel free to email us feedback and suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. And please do share this podcast with friends, acquaintances and colleagues who may be interested. Don't forget to check nknews.org regularly for all the latest news on North Korea.